We've talked about whether it is possible to listen to God's voice uh, today <coughs> and uh, this session oh let's sing a song let's I'm gonna teach you a song if you've ever been a student of mine at Southern you probably have heard this song or have known this song so it goes like this follow me and if, if there's three or four of you who know this song right along with me sing it we're gonna learn this Create in me the likeness of you. Restore in me your spirit anew. Like your heart, I want mine to be, so that Jesus may clearly be seen in me. Simple song, beautiful song. All right, can we do this? It's, there are some half tones there. You got to listen carefully, all right? And I, know I don't have a big... Is that microphone something that would work? It might be easier for you guys in the back to hear me. Yeah, why don't we do this? Let me have that mic. And everybody in the tape is going to really say, Ooh, no, that's loud. Okay, I'm stuck, huh? If we lift that up a little bit... Can we make it happen? Let's see. Let's see. All right, let's get innovative here. Create in me the likeness of you. Restore in me your spirit anew. Like your heart, I want mine to be, so that Jesus may clearly be seen in me. One more time. Create in me the likeness of you. Restore in me your spirit anew. Like your mind, I want mine to be so that Jesus may clearly be seen in me. Father in heaven, we know from the book of Psalms that whenever we praise you, angels delight to be in that presence. We thank you that you are here and you have been here and you will be here as we invite you. We desire your presence to be with us. We'd like to ask you, Father, that you speak to us and that you, you tell us and you teach us and you instruct us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. That will help. Okay. I left my phone number over here. I'm sorry. You know what? You are absolutely right. Hold on. I got this. You got your hand. We're putting the microphone on. Another mic. Let me give, uh, let me give you this back, if we can put that back out there. Thank you. Thank you. Elementary, Mr. Watson. That's what I'm telling myself. Yes, because I need to be on this side because I need to have this close in at, at a certain level. So this is, this is going to be working all right. But it's, and, and the clicker is not, uh, I don't have my clicker, so that's another problem. 
Alright, let's talk about do you really want to listen? Or learning to listen as we have in our, in our plan, in our, in our program. <clears throat> I taught a course in Christian spirituality when I was a, uh, a dean at the School of Religion at Southern. That was one of the advantages, the few perks of being administrative um, educational administration is that you can, you can assign yourself the classes you want to teach. You know, nobody does that for you. You just do it yourself. And so I, t I taught Christian spirituality. One of the first things that I've said, well, the best thing to really understand God is to really soak up Scripture. And so I said, I'm going to make these guys really learn Scripture and memorize a bunch of it. And uh, so every, you know, we met twice a week and I intended for them to have uh, a passage of Scripture memorized every time and then a a, an entire chapter every week. That's 15 chapters. Well, that was a little too much to stomach, and only one of my students really processed all of that. And I said, you know, the final exam is going to be very simple. Um, just write out the chapters. So I'm already telling you from the first day what the final exam is. Well, then I, I downscaled that to, um, to say, um, it, one chapter every, you know, like First uh, Corinthians 13 or Hebrews 11 or Isaiah 53, or uh, you know some of those major ones, or even or even um, uh, you know Revelation chapter 21, etc. Just beautiful chapters. Um, the the text, one of the texts that we spent some time on was Colossians 3:2. Set your mind on the things of God, uh, above, not on the things that are on earth. In a, a, a basic other principle, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I love that little text, don't you? This is the picture of a, a mother bird with, their, with her chicks, right? You know, you've seen those pictures on Discovery Channel or whatever. You know, these little birds with, uh, with uh, throats bigger than their, the rest of their bodies going like this. <laughs> Desperate. It's like, food now, you know. And God says, open your mouth wide. The biggest, the mouth, the one, you know, that's, that's how it is in the, in the animal world, right? The one that is the most eager gets the most fed, gets the bigger, to be the biggest the first. God says the same thing with us. He says, if you really open your mouth wide, I am going to fill it. It's up to you. Huh? Or texts like Psalm 101.3, I will set no worthless or wicked thing before my eyes. Very practical things that have to do with our spirituality. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Now this is an interesting text. Just you know, think about it. We're going to talk about meditating on Scripture on the fourth session. That's going to be this afternoon, the last session. Well, how, do, how do we do that? We're going to actually practice some of that too. Be still and know that I am God. According to this text, the way you will know that God is God is if you stay still. Now that's interesting. Because in most of our cases, we, we are full of activity. What does that mean? That may mean that in part, we religious people, church people, Christian people, are the ones that have the hardest times knowing who God really is. Because we're so active doing the things of God that you don't have time to stay still in order to know who God is. <coughs> the reason we need to slow down and listen is that only by doing so we will understand God is in control. Why? 
Now think about the logic of it. And this is why it's, it's important. That's why the Bible was given to us to chew on, to meditate, to process it. Not to just read it one time and say, oh, that was interesting. No, but to really process it through. But so by doing so, we will understand God is in control. You see, it, it's a lot easier for you to know if, if I ask for a miracle and that miracle takes place, I say, well, God is in control. But there are other times when the miracle doesn't happen. So I'm confused, right? When I have to stay still, it is in the staying still when, I, when, when there is nothing I am doing and all I am doing is trying to understand God and understand what He is like and hear God. Then all of what happens, what the fact is, happens is that all of these things still are messed up all around me. But in the staying still, I understand that, you know what? God is not, God is not losing any sleep over this. I certainly am. Or I'm really worried about this. And I, I, I don't see God really, really fretting over that. I don't see Him sweating. I don't see Him. So, so He must be okay. He must be, he must be really okay with all this. And He loves me and He cares for me. And, and He's interested in the, the smallest things in my life. And He's still not worried. Oh, so maybe it's okay. And that happens... That mental process, because so it all starts here, Ellen White says, it begins with your thoughts, happens as we stay still, not as we are in a flurry of activity. Let's unpack this a little bit. If by being still we'll know, really know God, and if He's simply waiting for us to open our mouths wide to fill them, why doesn't this happen more often among those who profess to follow Jesus? You know, if this is what God says, that to know, to be still is to know, it, it, that's how we will know God. It, it, if we open our mouth wide, He will fill them. If that is what God says, why isn't this happening more with Christians? Why are we not people who are astonishing neighbors and friends? Why are there, are there people not begging? Tell me more about the God you serve because it's obvious that, that your life is so different than mine and is so filled and so so meaningful and wow why isn't that happen you know uh, Paul says that the cross is a scandal why isn't the world scandalized you know in general the world's not scandalized is it Christians and non-Christians live uh, you know next to each other oh okay you know whatever so we we're, our flavor is just one of 31 that's the view from many others. But that is not what it is intended to be so according to Scripture. The biggest problem communicating with God is the fact that we don't show up. It's a very basic problem. It, we don't show up. It is not His unwillingness to speak to us. It is not our inability to understand, although that, is, that may be the case. Sometimes it is our inability to understand. Many are just too busy to come daily, and when they come, they can't, they can't stay long. Has that happened to you? I know it's happened to me many times. And even though consciously you say, I ought to spend really serious time with God today. You know, there are some days when you really need God more than other days. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Some days, 
15 minutes is enough because the objective that God has to meet with you on a daily basis is to give you confidence that He is in control of your life. That's the objective. That is the objective. But some days we have so much stuff, or we're so messed up, or we're so depressed, or we're so confused, that 15 minutes will not do. It'll take two or three hours. I, just recently, I was really struggling with some things. And I got up at 5, and I went through that. Um, I got up at 5, and I stayed 5 hours to process that. Thank you. I, um, it took me five hours to do that. In part because I determined in my mind that I was not going to leave until that was taken care of. Five hours. You can say, well, boy, one can hardly afford five hours every day. Don't you think God knows that? You know, when I told you about Hermahando, that's an unusual life, but, uh, but it is an unusually powerful life too. We have all heard of Martin Luther and others who have spent hours and hours every single day. Martin Luther used to say, I have so much more work to do tomorrow that I need to spend an extra two hours in prayer. You know, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? What we say usually is, I have so much to do tomorrow that I've got to get to it. I got to get cracking right to it. And so I only have 10 minutes to pray now. There's something about this that we need to process that. Uh, um, Einstein, we all know Einstein. You know, he was the man of the century, according to Time magazine in, in, uh, in, in 1999. The man of the century. The most influential single individual in the 20th century. Einstein was a Jew who was never really, really too convinced about the Christian life. And part of that because he observed Christian leaders. Now Einstein was very smart and he kept looking at God's creation every single day, right? He, that's why he did. He just looked at, you know, he, he think through about all of this thing. The theory of relativ relativity and all of that. I mean, just heavy stuff. His friend was physicist, Karl Meissner, just a genius on his own, except that next to Einstein, everybody kind of pales into it. And Meissner said about Einstein in his reluctance to buy into wholesale Christianity, this is what he said. He must have looked at what preachers said about God. The word God is behind there, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and felt that that was blasphemy. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined. They, the preachers, were just not talking about the real thing. So he's looking at people who handled the Word of God and he says, you know, they sound vacuous, they sound empty, they sound pompous or they sound like this is I, I have seen you know if this is God behind this creation this is a much bigger God than what I hear preachers talk about and that is how that is how many secular people well-educated smart people 
look at Christianity and says, you know, the, the, the evidence is that it, 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 you know, like Paul says, it's not scandalizing. It, it's, not, it's not really making a deep impression. It's, it's, it's a flavor, but it's not life-changing. Why isn't God more real among Christians in the world? Why? Here's my, here's my suggestion. Two, two reasons why. Two fundamental reasons why. Because we substitute entertainment for contemplation. Or contemplation for entertainment. That's what I mean to say. And good works for unbelief. In other words, instead of contemplating God, be still and thinking about God and to, to understand what God is, we, a lot of us, use up time in entertainment. I, I, I will speak for myself, and that's, that's one Achilles heel too. Or good works for unbelief, for, for belief actually. It's, in other words, we, if we just do certain things, it makes us feel like we are on the side of God or that God is with us when in reality many times what we need to do is to stay back and let God do it. And that takes belief, but we're not quite ready to believe that much, you know. And so we got to help God. Good works. Hmm? Let me unpack this a little bit. This is a, a well-known writer now, John Piper. He... Um, He's not an Adventist, but he's really, really a deep thinker and, uh, and just has such bold faith in God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God, he said, is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not pornography, it is, it is sitcoms. Mm -hmm. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, in reference to that parable Jesus gave, it is a piece of land, a, la a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Common, regular things. That's what's keeping us from God. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. In other words, is that is that regular is that regular thing that keeps us tied to this world. The thing that really that, that may be affecting us more than the big sins and the big exploits and the big selfishness that we may encounter or that other people follow through with. Here's a study about the average American's discretionary use of time over 75 years you know, an average lifespan. What do Americans do with 75 years of life? 24 years are sleep. You say, man, that's a third of your life. Sure enough, that's a third of your life you're asleep. Four years you're standing or waiting in line. 
Some of that is experienced right here in GYC. <laughs> Meals, you know. Um, four years eating. You spend entire four years eating. Some of you spend more than that. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Half a year in the bathroom. And I could make another pun about that one. Um, you know, I, I have a daughter who I, I'm sure will far exceed that one. And then half a year of uh, physical activity. This is it. You know, half a year in the bathroom, half a year. So we do as much exercise as we spend in the bathroom. That, there's something, you know, about that. What I didn't tell you is one other category. Because that doesn't add up to 75 years, does it? There's another category, major category. Not all of them are, are here anyway. 13 years, and the average American that would live 75 years will spend 13 years watching television. 13 years. Wow. Now I speak, I speak as a recovering TV-holic. Even as a pastor for years, I would excuse my hard work. I would come back late, you know, from doing ministry. My small children were in bed. My wife was in bed. She was exhausted because she had dealt with three little kids. So I would watch, you know, and say, well, I'll just catch the 11 o'clock news. And then there's always something else, you know, some funny program after that, and then there's something else, and so sometimes I would stay up until 1 o'clock. Now, do I, do I feel like getting up at 5.30 in the morning to talk with God after I've, I've spent some time with the world, you know, even if it is not wholly, decidedly evil? What it does, it just zaps away from me a desire to live in the presence of God. It neutralizes me, and that's all the devil wants. Mm. The devil doesn't need you to be a, um, a demon. The devil only needs you to uh, have enough of what he has to offer. Just mix it up a little bit. Just mix it up. So that our impact in the world will be limited. Because the world will recognize those things in the world that are part of us. It's like we're all family, right? They'll see, they'll see that. You know, I can see the traits of, you know, the same. Roland Hextack wrote a, a, a little book some years ago, The Mind Manipulators, and he quoted from a study that was very interesting, and this is what he said. He said it well, so I'm quoting it. The significant fact we should note here about this study that the study said that everything we ever see is actually in our minds. Everything we ever hear is in our, in our minds. You know, nothing really, really leaves us. It says, um, is that events of which we have no conscious recall are nevertheless printed as if on a cinema film without it within our mind. Every television program, every billboard message, every advertisement, every person scrutinized, every suspicion harbored, every word spoken, it's all there. In fact, there were studies, for instance, I remember distinctly one case where they <coughs> They put some electrodes in this uh, young woman in her 30s, and, uh, and she was able to reproduce note for note an entire orchestra that she listened to one time, an orchestra piece, she listened to one time 17 years before. Wow. 
everything is in your mind. Your mind is an amazing thing. You just can't recall it at will. But it, everything is there. Good and bad and ugly. Everything is there. Uh, William James is a father of American psychology. He's the first guy who really started really thinking seriously about that and many people built on his shoulders. He says this, that drunken Rip Van, Wil Van, Wil Van, Van Winkle in the story, the Jefferson's play, excuses himself for every fresh dereliction saying, I won't count it this time. The guy used to get drunk and he says, well, I'm not going to count it, I'm going to start over again and so forth. Well, he may not count it, and kind heaven may not count it, but it is being counted nonetheless. Nothing we ever do is, in strict scientific literalness, wiped out. Now, before you get depressed about that, <laughs> because you say, man, I've seen some stuff that I shouldn't have seen, and I've heard some stuff, and I've done some stuff that I shouldn't ever have done. That is the power of grace. I want you to know there's a power of grace. In spite of the fact that that is, the, that is there, God can override and overcome, you know, and work through that. I mean, that is why it's amazing. The power of God is amazing because, because the, the power of sin is amazing. But the power of God is even more amazing. Because as Romans says, where sin, where sin abounded, what? Grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. There is no influence, Ellen White says, now she agrees with these statements, Testimonies, Volume 4, 653. There is no influence in our land more powerful to poison the imagination, to destroy religious impressions, and to blunt the relish for the tranquil pleasures and sober realities of life than theatrical amusement. Now, that's 120 years ago. Theatrical amusements. You know, what's the, what was the big deal in Ellen White's time? Theater and playing cards and playing chess. Now you tell me, what do we have today that could get our attention um, that will take us to a, a, a realm of, you know, to escape? This is, this is, this is all m methods of escape. This is all a way of saying, oh, I just want to, I, I want to let go of my burdens, uh, you know. And sometimes, I mean, this is very real, and I don't know how much you struggle with this. I'm sure that some, in a group this size, some struggle very severely with some of these things, and some of you hardly at all. But uh, I remember uh, one time I was giving a, uh, with a physician friend of mine, we were giving a five-day plan, you know, the, the, the stop smoking clinic things, actually the nine-day, five to nine. And I remember when a lady said to me one time that just, just got there. She said she was an older lady. She was uh, probably around 70, and she, we were trying to help her quit smoking. And she says one time, she says she said to me, you know, I was a young guy. I was a young pastor, probably 28 or 29 at that time, maybe 30. He says, what you have to understand, he, she said to me, is that this, and she showed me her cigarette. This has been my best friend all of these years. He says it has survived three divorces. <laughs> and that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you medicate by entertainment. What you're doing is you're going to, you're going to a, a, a faithful friend. Mm. You turn on the TV, you feel good for a time, very little time. Later you may feel not good. 
or you 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 get it you know a DVD and you watch it you know you you blow three hours and you know and you feel like you're relaxed you're you're in suspended time or you or you do other things you know you get on internet and you get you know you get on Facebook for four hours you know <laughs> you know what is that it 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 pushes you away from having to the having to aspect of it it may be uh, really bad or it not may not be inherently really bad but it is bad in the sense that you're really trusting it at this point this is what you're counting on this is this is okay this makes me feel okay for a while people that drink people that do drugs people that smoke people that have various addictions have simply p uh, take it to a, 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 a further level but it's the same principle escape from my immediate reality she says that destroys religious impressions huh? it destroys religious impressions and that's why it's dangerous many have turned away from God's plan to follow human inventions now this is really really an interesting statement and in, uh, because she wrote this about a hundred and five years ago many have turned away from God's plan to follow human inventions to the detriment of spiritual life amusements are doing more to counteract the working of the Holy Spirit than anything else and the Lord is grieved what is she saying? Amusements are doing more to counteract the working of the Holy Spirit than anything else. Whoa! Now I'm not here to advocate because I'm not a, I'm not a paragon of of uh, of virtue when it comes to that. I I you know I travel so much in every motel room has a big TV, sometimes a bigger TV. <laughs> so it's very easy, you know. And, and it's something that I, I have to struggle with even today because it's very... My wife doesn't have any problem with that. She's, she, bless her heart. If the TV is on, she can watch it and she cannot watch it. If a TV is on, I cannot do that. I, I cannot not watch it if it's on. It's a, it's a big problem. And so, but this is counteracting the working of the Holy Spirit. Imagine, she at that time there was no internet. At that time there was no, you know, no no, no movies, no no uh, DVDs, no anything else. So much, and she talks about human inventions. What would she say today? Man, she'd write a whole book on this. <laughs> Listen to C.S. Lewis. The, he he put it this way. You know, he's quite a writer, and and it's really it just just hits you between the eyes. It does not matter how small the sins are provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's, it's, it's a normal life. It's just moving little by little by little by little out that way. Have you ever noticed that if you don't watch television for a while, 
and then after months or years of not watching it, you you know you go to somebody's house or you watch it again. There's a sitcom there, you know, something eight o'clock, right? It's supposed to be for children too, and you say, "What is this?" You know the sexual innuendos, the, the selfish life, the, the, the trivial things, the things that mean nothing. And you say, is this life about? And then you recognize, you know, I used to have a daily diet of that for years. And I didn't think that was bad. So that's, that's a good, that's, that's, that's like an ant when they don't see their, their, their you know, n nephews for three years. Oh my, you've really grown! Yeah, well, every single day, except that you didn't notice, you know. That's exactly what happens with these things that the world has to offer. A good friend of mine, and you've heard, some of you have heard my tapes or heard me before, and heard me say this. A good friend of mine here from Northern California, from Northern California, yeah, we're almost in Northern California, um, used to say that the 11 o'clock news is nothing else than the parade of the devil's activity that day. And there's a lot of truth about that. Because most of the news is not happy, great things that people have done for other people. It is, you know, killings, and it is, it is you know, political wranglings, and it is, uh, you know, robbery, and it's how bad, it's bad news. It's all bad news. And who's responsible for bad news? The devil is the one that is orchestrating all that. So the biggest problem communicating with God is the fact that we don't show up. The second biggest problem, you know, we, 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 we supplant that with, we use that time showing up, we use it with entertainment many times. The second biggest problem is the fact that when we show up, we think we listen, but our actions actually show the opposite. Let's uh, unpack that a little bit. Look at the example of Hezekiah. You know the story of Hezekiah, right? The king? In 2 Chronicles 29, this is a, a fascinating story because uh, Hezekiah, well, one of the stories of, uh, related to Hezekiah shows up in three different books, which is the only time, except for in the Gospels, where you have that. Um, you have that in Chronicles, you have it in Kings, and then you have it in Isaiah. The Bible says that he was a king of Judah that did right in the eyes of God. He, he followed God. He wanted to be faithful to God. He restored the Passover, which had been left uh, uncared for, you know, uh, unpracticed for years. He opened the temple worship, which had been in decay. He organized the priests for service. He restored all of that, the worship of God. He destroyed images in high places, which was a big deal. Because even the good kings would destroy images, but they would not destroy the shrines in the high places. In other words, they would destroy the, the smaller uh, temples, if you will, but not the little shrines. You know, have you ever visited uh, India, for instance? Anybody has been to India? In India, um, or in, even in Mexico sometimes, when there is a dead person, they will make a little shrine, what that is, and they actually come and, and sort of worship that. In India, if you have some money, then you can make a shrine for your own God. It's your God. It's your, your votive gift your, you know, to the God, you know, out of thousands of them, obviously. And so that's what the Israelites did. They worshipped God, the God of heaven, the God of the prophets, but they also worshipped the many other gods, and they had all these little shrines. Well, Hezekiah even, even killed that. 
So he was really, really, really good. But Hezekiah, um, remember the story when uh, the king of Assyria came to destroy him, right? And he really was, you know, using these pompous words and, and, and sent a letter says, you know, why do you listen to God? Don't you know that God told me to destroy all these cities of Judah? They had destroyed about 40 cities of Judah already by the time they got to Jerusalem. And so he says, just give up, man. Just give up. And he spoke in Hebrew. It's so smart. That, that uh, Shamraka is called in, 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 uh, in Hebrew. That's the actual title of the ambassador of the king. And he speaks in their own language of the people on the wall. Remember the story? And he says, you know, why do you listen to your king? And, you know, listen to the king of, you know, Sennacherib. He really is in contact with God. And this is the time for you to give up your, you know, we're going to take care of you. You know, if you do that, if you don't, we're going to just cut you into little pieces. I mean, it was really <sighs> like this, right? And so Hezekiah goes to the temple and he presents this letter and he appeals to God. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Look at the appeal. The appeal of Hezekiah is to listen to him. Please listen to me, God. Open your eyes, and Lord, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Zennacherib to reproach the living God. I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. That was probably the highest moment of Hezekiah's life. That was the most powerful, courageous thing he could do. He trusted in the living God and he said, God, you're going to make it happen here. We are threatened by a mighty, mighty, mighty ar army. Everybody has given up. Forty of our own cities have, have collapsed under this power. And this is the last. But you're going to take your stand here, aren't you, God? Because this is a city that carries your name, right? Well, you know that. Incline your ear. Here, listen, I pray. This is his appeal. And what did God do? Remember? Overnight, one angel killed 185,000 of them. Amazing story, right? And everybody else just curried away and says, Ooh, they got some power here. Now, Isaiah, okay, yeah, let me finish that part of the story. Isaiah sent, was sent to Hezekiah saying, Because you have prayed to me about Zennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. I have heard you. Look at God. Alright? We don't listen to him very much. But the one time we ask him for something mm -hmm. and we say, please listen to me, God says, okay. Isn't that an amazing concept? Mm -hmm. The God of the universe is more willing to listen to us, to us, than we are to listen to God. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing thing. And yet he is. He does that. It says, because you have prayed to me about Zennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard you. In that night that angel of the Lord struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians, and his sons killed Zennacherib with a sword. That's how, how it ended up. In those days, shortly after this, Hezekiah became mortally ill. You know the rest of this story. And Isaiah the prophet came and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. What do we have here? We have two stories basically about listening. The one story is Hezekiah pleading to God, saying, God, listen to me. Please, we need help. And the Bible says that God listened to the words of Hezekiah and, and intervened, and 185,000 were killed of his enemies. Moments later, shortly later, 
God has something to say to Hezekiah through Isaiah, saying, Fit, you know, put, you know, write your will, you know, pay your last debts, you're going to die. Now that's a privilege, right? Because most of us are not told when we're going to die. That's a real privilege, and that's, that's actually an act of closeness demonstrated by God to Hezekiah. Says, you know, we're, we're close enough friends, I can tell you that. I can tell you that. And what happens with Hezekiah? The one time now that God is saying, I want you to listen to me now, Hezekiah says, no way. No way, Jose. San Jose. No way. Set your house in order. You shall die. Hezekiah does not listen. Instead, he appeals to live. Right? He ignores that completely. He doesn't say, tell me more. Or why. He, he simply says, I don't want to listen to that. I don't, to, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And so he immediately turns to the wall, the Bible says. He turns to the wall, he cries out, God, don't do this to me. Right? And what does God do? He listens again. Amazing. He listens again. But God knows this time it'll really cost. How important it is to listen to God the first time and act. He listens. Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, he told Isaiah, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. And I will add 15 years to your life. Okay, what were the consequences? Hezekiah gave, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, in the Chronicles uh, reference, it says, Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. In other words, he took it for granted. He took it for granted. He says, oh, oh boy, I'm off the, I'm off the rope. I, I'm not going to die, and God is going to give me another 15 years. Oh, yeah, I can assimilate that. This is great. You know, this is great. And he forgot all about it. How many times do we do that? You know, God does something special for us. We say, oh, thank you, God, and we move on. And there's no benefit. There's nothing that, that we, we don't process that. We simply say, as, we act as if that was our entitlement. We're not entitled to the next breath. God has purchased that. We're not entitled to anything. I remember I was, maybe sometime I'll, I'll tell you the, the full story, but I, I was dying with malaria about seven years ago. And I remember um, saying to God, God, you do not owe me anything. I owe you everything to you. And I just want to thank you for having let me live this long. And let me know what I've come to know about you. But many times we, we act as if everything is supposed to be ours, right? Ooh, our time is... No, no, we got another ten minutes. Is that right? Okay. <clears throat> what was the result of not listening to God? Here's the result of not listening to God. The loss of the kingdom to the visiting Babylonians. Remember? The Babylonians followed up. And he showed him up, you know, showed him the temple, the, all the gold in the temple. And the Babylonians says, hmm, 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 this would be a good place to take over, you know. And that's exactly what happened, right? <laughs> and the loss of the kingdom through his own flesh and blood, his son Manasseh. Remember that? Who was Manasseh? Manasseh was the wickedest king in Judah. 
Even, I mean, then there were some real wicked ones. This was the wickedest. I mean, for 45 years, you say, God, wouldn't, couldn't you just cut him down after, you know, three months? You know, 45 years, he let him live. The, the Bible says that there was, there was blood running in the streets of Jerusalem because of his behavior. The Bible says that he not only uh, became so idolatrous, he put an Asherah, you know, the, the many-breasted uh, uh, goddess, in the middle of the temple. Alright? He, 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 he put a whole pantheon of the gods in the sanctuary, and then he started sacrificing his own children. This guy had really <laughs> lost it. That was Hezekiah's son. And you know what? That boy should have never been born. Because when you compare scripture very carefully, you'll find that he was born three years after Hezekiah should have been dead. The Bible says he was 12 years old when Hezekiah's father died. And God has said to Hezekiah, I'm going to give you 15 years. So he was three, you know, three years after that extra time he was born. He should have never been born. And in all of the pain that Judah withstood, in all the misery, because Hezekiah was not willing to listen to God, he was all too willing to ask God, but not to listen when God spoke. Ellen White. No, this is not a statement by Ellen White. I want, you, I want to make that clear, so keep that in mind. This is a statement that was found in her Bible when she died in uh, 1915. A statement that was found in her Bible, probably written by one of the Holiness writers. She had several books from the Holiness writers. Holiness movement in the second half of the, of the 19th century was a movement, a kind of a Wesleyan movement that really called people to total surrender in God, you know. And this is what it says. This is evidently something she really liked. That's why she had it in her Bible. The prayer that does not succeed in modulating our wishes, in changing the passionate desire into still submission, the anxious, tumultuous expectation into quiet surrender, is not true prayer. The life is most holy in which there is least of petition and desire and most of waiting upon God. That in which petition often passes into thanksgiving. Pray until prayer makes you forget your own wishes. Wow, chew on that. Pray until prayer makes you forget your own wishes and leaves or merges it into God's will. I remember an old pastor, a friend of mine, he was retiring when I was beginning in the ministry. And he said something like that to me. He said, the more you pray, the, the less you pray about anything that you're concerned about, the more you pray about the things that God is concerned about. Mm. The divine wisdom has given us prayer not as a means to obtain the good things of earth, but as a mean whereby we learn to do without them. Not as a means to escape evil, but as a means whereby we become strong to meet it. She liked that. She had that in her Bible. Uh, <clears throat> that is the kind of, the level of relationship God wants to enjoy with each of us 
so that when we listen to God, we really joyfully move forward with it, and we can really discern that. And we don't argue, we don't, we don't bring it up again, you know, <clears throat> that, 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 that our conversations with God become more and more submissive, more and more saying, God, whatever it is that you want to, what would you like to say? In fact, <clears throat> there's that text, do I have it? No, I don't have it here. There's a text I'll quote at, at one point, where God, where God says, be very careful when you approach God, this is in Ecclesiastes 5. Um, use very few words. We'll, we'll come to that. On the Mount of Transfiguration, here's a typical example of what happens. You know the story, right? James, Peter, and John are there with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, right? They encourage Jesus. Uh, the divinity of Jesus uh, <coughs> uh, comes through his life. Peter, James, and John are just astonished at that, and they say, wow, look at that. And <clears throat> the voice of the Father speaks, right? This is my beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. And you know what it says? You know, he mentioned that when, that, that is in two other places, right? Mm -hmm. But this time, there's an additional thing. The additional thing is, listen to him. Listen to him. Why does God bother to say that at this juncture? Listen to him. Well, what did Jesus set out to do? He set out to pray. What was Jesus' burden? The upcoming trial of the cross, his sacrifice. That was his burden. You know, could I go through this? Can, you know, please strengthen me to do that. What had, been trying to had he been trying to tell the disciples for weeks now? He had been trying that he would be killed, but that he would be resurrected on the third day. For six months he had been, he had been saying that to them. But they were not catching on. They were not catching on. What did the father say? This is my son. Listen to him. What was Peter doing? He was talking. He was making plans. He said, oh, this is a wonderful place. We got we to make a memorial out of it. You know, we, get, you know, we, can, we can charge some entrance fees. You know, we can really be, make a big thing. You know, make a Christian theme park out of this. You know, that's, that's what he's saying. And so God has to interrupt Peter and say, hey, listen him. Why was Jesus able to handle the cross and Peter was not able to handle the cross? Because Jesus prayed and listened to his father, but Peter slept and then made plans for God. Now what Peter did was not bad. There's nothing reprehensible about that. But it didn't cut it. Alan White says that the reason Peter denied Jesus is because he slept. He slept. And he slept because he just didn't pay enough attention to when Jesus says, Pray so that you may what? Not enter into temptation. Now, if Peter had been really in tune with Jesus, he would have said, Oh, there's a very important reason why I ought to pray now. This is not just a statement, so I better really do that, because otherwise I'm going to fall into temptation. Sure enough, you know, he denied his Savior, he cursed, you know, and, and, and he wept bitterly about that. A.W. Tozer, his uh, Christian writer, he says, Father, I want to know thee. My cowardly heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart. I think that that was the attitude of David all the time. David had all kinds of problems, but he kept coming Amen. to God. 
Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a part of my living self that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it for thyself will be the light of it and there shall be no night there. Many this is one of the most important statements about the devotional life you can, re you can get from Ellen White. This is uh, Education 260. Really, get to it, underline that, read that, and read that again. That whole chapter, Prayer and Faith, is one of the most wonderful chapters you could ever read. Many, even there in their seasons of devotional, fail to receive, of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They're in too great haste, she says. With hurried steps they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think. That's it. To pray. To wait. Wait upon me. Be still and know that I am God. Upon God for renewal of the physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of His Spirit. Receiving this, they will be quickened by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. I could tell you story after story after story how this is so true in my own life. Regardless of where, you know, tired and weary, but I said, God, I'm counting on you. I need to spend time with you. I, this is, and God does refresh you. And He gives you new doses as if you had slept nine hours instead of three. And then at nine o'clock that night, God turns off the switch. He says, okay, this is all you needed. Now you're going to be so tired, you're really going to get to bed. So, the wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with Him. This is our need. To sit down, to engage as a friend. You guys, you know, you guys spend time with Facebook, don't you? And in my space, and, and, and you text 1,400 times a day. <laughs> Why? Because you want to keep in contact with your friends. This is what she's saying. We, we, we need to choose to do that. And, and it doesn't come automatically because there are habits we need to overcome and so forth and create new habits in the process. Almost done here. Martha, you know this story. You're worried about many things. Only few things are necessary. Only really one. And he, he played with words in Greek. Only one dish is necessary, he said. You know, little play on words there. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away. And you find Mary... Every time you find Mary, from the time she was redeemed after being caught in adultery. You know, the woman caught in adultery, that was Mary Magdalene. Uh, you find her, the, Ellen White says, she cast herself at the feet of Jesus, you know, sobbing her repentance. Ever since, ever since you find Martha, I mean Mary, you find her at the feet of Jesus. Ever since. At the home of Bethany, uh, a few weeks later, uh, when Lazarus died. Uh, three weeks before Jesus was crucified, two or three weeks before He was crucified, when uh, at the anointing, the Sabbath before Jesus was crucified, she was at His feet. At the cross, she was at His feet. At the resurrection, she was at His feet. Every 
time, no wonder Mary Magdalene, former prostitute, was the only one of Jesus' hundreds of disciples who understood the cross before the cross took place. That's why he says this gospel, this, this woman, what she has experienced, that will be spread around the world. Listening, the safest place on earth is at the feet of Jesus. That's the safest place on earth. And I, I have a great little story, but I don't have the time to read that. So I'll, 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 I don't know if we'll find another time. But it's a great little story that illustrates our need to do that. Let's, uh, I just want to ask you, because our time is up, I want to ask you, do you want to, I know that many of you have devotional lives, and I know that you spend time with God in the morning. But I want to ask you if, you, if you sense that the Lord wants you to take this very seriously, in that, in that He wants you to take it to the next level, if you will, to really, to go, to, to establish, for some of you, to, es to establish genuine communication, and then, and then for some of you, to go on to real communion, real communion, a dialogue, an, an engagement of friends, among friends, and that you're willing to say today, God, I really want that. I want that kind of a life. I want that kind of experience in my life so that I really, I can live in the very presence of God every single day, at every moment, when I go to school, when I go to work, when I talk with friends, when I talk to strangers, when I, when I am eating, when I am, it, whatever I'm doing, I know that you and I are in conversation together. Is there anybody today that wants to say, I, I want to have that kind of experience? I do too. I do too. I just pray, let's pray that the Lord will do that in our lives. If we are willing, He will certainly do that which we give Him to work with. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for some of the lessons that You've taught us today. Thank You for the encouragement to see that God is a marvelous God who is always willing to listen to us even though so many times we are not willing to listen to Him. God takes us so much more seriously than we take you, O oh Lord, many times. Please forgive us. Forgive us for treating you as a, someone of less important importance than a, a neighbor or a co-worker many times. And help us, dear Jesus, to develop such a hunger for you that everything else the world has to offer will be totally minimized and it become oblivious and unimportant and uninteresting in our lives. That, that, that our focal point is you, Jesus. I want to make you happy. I want to talk with you. I, I want to walk with you. I want to know you as my bestest friend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.